of, of the fairness doctrine and the rise of uh, right-wing hate radio. Mm. Like Rush Limbaugh rose when he did because he couldn't have risen the way he did doing what he was doing under the fairness doctrine. The fairness doctrine made Rush Limbaugh impossible. That's very interesting. And, and by extension, yeah, you know, and like Don Imason uh, and oh, a bunch of other people for whom the only adjective I can come up with at the moment um, became... Uh, oh, see, and here we go. We can make... See, this was a... This was part of the terms of holding a, a broadcast license. Mm -hmm. You know, just as one of the terms of a broadcast license is that you don't use the you don't use certain adjectives as um, as appropriate and apt as they may be um, yeah. on the air during a certain time on certain, you know. That's a term of, yeah, of holding a broadcast license, here, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Tammy, we're going to have to wrap it up. Yeah. Sure. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. And there's definitely going to be a part two to this bad boy. It's a great mm -hmm. discussion we're having here. Um, again, you can check us out on the web, kboo.fm uh, slash The Gap. I am Tammy. On the line with me is Althea and Sonia. We're wishing you a great, fantastic, and happy Friday, rest of your weekend, and everything in between. This is Judy Berry from Earth First, and when I'm in Portland, I listen to non-commercial community radio, KBOO Portland. No compromise in defense of the truth. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available on our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Board of Directors meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 6.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. and welcome to Arab Voices on Houston Specifica Radio, listener-sponsored, commercial-free KPFT 90.1 FM, with live streaming, podcasting, and online archive previous shows at both kpft.org and arabvoices.net. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. This show is syndicated and it airs on other radio stations in different states in the U.S. Today on Arab Voices, we will have two segments. First, an interview with Chip Gibbons, policy director for Defending Rights and Dissent, and host of Still Spying podcast. We speak with him about the new proposed domestic terrorism legislation, what it means, and why it would make things worse. We'll talk about the FBI's terrorism investigations into nonviolent groups while failing to thwart attacks by others, state surveillance powers, and more. During the second segment, we will interview Jihan Hakim, Yemeni-American based in California and chair of the Yemeni Alliance Committee. We'll talk about the ongoing war and genocide on Yemen, the upcoming World Says No to War on Yemen Global Online Rally, scheduled for January 25, 2021, the Biden administration's stance towards the war on Yemen and how to stop it, and more. Over the past couple of weeks, after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, there has been lots of talk about a new domestic terrorism legislation, and that has faced a lot of opposition from numerous organizations in the United States. As a matter of fact, at least 137 civil and human rights organizations, including the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, the American Civil Liberties Union, 
the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, the Arab American Institute, Code Pink, the Council on American Islamic Relations, Defending Rights and Dissent, Muslim Advocates, Muslim Justice League, Muslim Public Affairs Council, the NAACP, the National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild, and Palestine Legal, just to name a few. Those 137 organizations called on Congress to ensure that the Department of Justice utilize the over 50 federal statutes already in existence to investigate and prosecute individuals who participated in the insurrection. The groups identified other action Congress can take to address the long-standing and ongoing threat posed by white supremacists and urged them to abstain from passing any additional domestic terrorism laws. To talk about this new proposed domestic terrorism legislation, I spoke with Chip Gibbons, Policy Director for Defending Rights and Dissent, one of the 137 organizations I just mentioned. Joining us via phone from Washington, D.C. is Chip Gibbons. Chip is the Policy Director for Defending Rights and Dissent and hosts the Still Spying podcast, which explores the history of FBI political surveillance. As a journalist and researcher, his writings on the abuses of the U.S. national security state at home and abroad have appeared in Jacobin, in These Times, and The Intercept. Chip Gibbons authored the report Still Spying on Dissent, the Enduring Problem of FBI First Amendment Abuse. Chip, welcome to Arab Voices. Well, thank you so much. I'm honored to join you today. It's good to have you on the show. Could you first tell our listeners a bit about your organization, Defending Rights and Dissent? Sure. Defending Rights and Dissent is an organization that works to fulfill the promise of the Bill of Rights. And we say fulfill the promise of the Bill of Rights because we recognize that throughout our country's history, at no point has the Bill of Rights ever really been fully upheld, and that for large portions of the population, they had been excluded from its protections or for long periods of time. And you know, in many cases, movements like labor, like civil rights, like women's rights, sort of movements to sort of expand the protection of the Bill of Rights beyond you know, who was originally included by it have been those movements that have most strengthened and, and enriched our democracy. Uh, while we want to fulfill the promise of the Bill of Rights broadly, we focus particularly on defending the right to political expression. We formed as a result of the merger of a number of organizations, but we trace our, organ- our organizational lineage back originally to the National Coalition, National Committee to Abolish the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was founded by people who were spied on by the FBI, who were called before HUAC. So defending uh, the right to political expression from surveillance, from McCarthyite repression, is particularly near and dear to our hearts because of that history. And you're all going to be very, very busy in the next few years, uh, almost all the time, really, with, with what's happening in the U.S., <laughs> We're always busy, unfortunately. So, Chip, the whole world witnessed the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, but probably the most shocking was not the attack itself, as many apparently have known about those groups and their intention, but the lack of response from law enforcement agencies to prevent such an attack, whether in advance of it, as we apparently know now from some reports that there were signs and there were... Uh, some information out there that they plan an attack or at the time that it took place. Your reaction to that attack first? Yeah, first of all, I want to say as someone who lives and works in Washington, D.C., my office is in what's now called the red zone of areas closed down for the inauguration, but I have not been in the office because of COVID. You know, I I take what happened on January the 6th very, very serious. I have no interest while I don't want to see it, you know, abused to eviscerate civil liberties further, I have no interest in downplaying or minimizing what happened. We saw people who had the intent to uh, stop the counting of electoral votes in order to install the loser of an election as the winner storm the Capitol. We, we saw them engage in violence 
against some law enforcement. They had zip ties. They planted IEDs. There's evidence that they were interested in, you know, assassinating or kidnapping elected officials. It, it's very, very disturbing what happened that day. And, and living through it in the city, you know, was quite a terrifying experience in some respects. So I don't want to minimize people's concerns here. Uh, one of the most shocking things, though, had to be the law enforcement response or lack thereof. You know, you saw there were some violence by the insurrectionists against Capitol Police and MPD, but you also see video of a Capitol Police officer opening the gate to let them in. You saw Capitol Police officers taking selfies with them. You saw them asking them very nicely if they wanted to leave the floor of the Senate chamber, and when they said no, they didn't really do anything. And this is compared to, you know, the Capitol Police has been arresting uh, protesters and just people in the Capitol for decades for far less than, than, you know, staging an insurrection. You know, my colleague Shahid Batar, Shahid Batar, you know, he tried to ask James Clapper a question after he was done testifying, not while he was testifying, after he was done uh, testifying about NSA surveillance and about the lack of accountability for police violence, and they arrested him, right? They just, they just took him away in, in handcuffs. Um, so if you try to ask the question of a public official, you get arrested. But if you storm the Capitol with zip ties, you know, that seems to be A-OK. And part of the problem here is the noted political biases of law enforcement, right? We know how they respond when anti-war protesters or Black Lives Matter protesters come to the Capitol. And it's because they don't like that type of speech. They're very sort of biased against it, but it goes in another direction where some members of the Capitol Police have very far-right sympathies and probably sympathize with some of the people who were engaged in the insurrection. One of the very shocking, but I guess not surprising uh, revelations since January the 6th has been the number of off-duty police who took part in the insurrection or active-duty military. And it, it, it's just very troubling. And we have to realize that within the security state and within the security apparatuses, whether that's local law enforcement or national intelligence, there are real sympathies with the far right. And these political biases impact how they police and surveil dissent and protest and also an insurrection. You know, it's really uh, something that is uh, it is really talked about everywhere. So we know now, again, from from some reports out there, that apparently the, either the FBI or some other law enforcement agencies knew about that some are planning an attack or some type of an attack on January 6th. So the initial question is, so why didn't they stop it before it happened? Why didn't enter? I mean, my goodness, we are seeing the FBI and so many different law enforcement agencies now. If anybody sneezes, they probably know that he's going to sneeze before he or she sneezes. So why did they not act on that supposedly information that they knew before? And let's say that they didn't know that. But on that particular day, we are seeing law enforcement agencies live on TV opening the gates, kind of standing on the side. Yeah, there were some individuals who stood up to them and fought them. There is a policeman that was killed. But there are others who kind of, that's okay. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, of course the FBI knew this was going to happen. Like everyone in this nation knew it was going to happen. Most of this was planned in plain sight, in the open. There was all kinds of discussions in the public about potential for violence. I know that I was bracing myself that day for what might happen. You know, people avoided the downtown area. I mean, people are already largely avoiding it because of, you know, COVID. But but people really were on edge in, in the city. You know, everyday people were really on edge because of what they expected was going to take place. And it turned out that did take place. So why was the FBI not on the case? Why was the Capitol Police response so muted? I mean, there's a couple of explanations. Uh, one that's been floated that I believe is that people were more worried about offending Donald Trump than they were with, um, you know, 
defending the Capitol. They were afraid that if they called in the big militarized response to these Trump protesters, it would look bad. Of course, they call in big militarized responses to racial justice protesters all the time, but they didn't want to, you know, anger these people or anger Donald Trump. So why do they cater to them in a way that they don't cater to uh, people fighting for racial justice or against war and imperialism? And, and that goes to the sort of inherent bias question. And there's a story that I've been telling a lot in the past few days, and I frequently tell it when talking about the FBI in general, but I think it's very relevant at the moment. Uh, some years ago, there was a white supremacist demonstration in California. You know, there were anti-racist counter-protesters, and the white supremacist protesters stabbed some of the anti-racist protesters. Uh, the FBI opened an investigation, a counterterrorism investigation, not into the white supremacists who did it stabbing, but into the protesters who were stabbed. Uh, the group who organized the demonstration was not the Ku Klux Klan, but the FBI and their internal documents were quite confused and thought it was the Klan. They considered opening an investigation about the anti-racist protesters conspiring to violate the civil rights of the Ku Klux Klan. And these documents describe the Ku Klux Klan, this is the FBI's description of them, as an organization that some people believe has white supremacist views, right? So here you have a situation where there's an act of violence carried out by a white supremacist against anti-racist protesters, and the FBI chooses to devote its resource to the people who were the victims of that violence. And if you look at who the FBI spies on again and again, it's groups like Black Lives Matter, and that goes way back. We know they were spying on the Black Panther Party in the 60s. We know they were spying on MLK. It's anti-war groups. It's, um, it's, it's environmentalists. It's labor groups. It's the same groups over and over again. So the sort of muted response or failure to respond is just sort of more evidence of this systemic political bias that impacts FBI surveillance, on the one hand, you have them doing pernicious, unconstitutional surveillance of the First Amendment protected speech of political groups they don't like, and on the other hand, you have an entirely muted response to people who are planning actual violence in plain sight. Yeah, and you know, you said it's political bias. If they, and many have actually already talked about this, if there were Muslim Americans or Arab Americans or even other ethnicities and so on leading these protests, I'm not an even, going to even talk about attacks, even leading the protests there, they would have been handled differently, most likely by law enforcement agencies, instantly on the spot. They wouldn't even step an inch into the compound of the U.S. Capitol. Absolutely. Racial and ethnic and religious bias is very strong in the FBI. We know they send informants into the Muslim American community broadly where they don't have any evidence of specific crimes and have these informants sort of act as agent provocateurs to sort of gin up, um, you know, fake terror plots that they can then bust people for and pat themselves on the back. And that, you know, while there's political bias at stake, there is also racial bias and that when going after groups they, they dislike, you know, black-led groups, Muslim-led groups, those groups suffer the most. Their responses are even more vicious than, than to, to the other groups. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so there is a new legislation now in the works aimed at addressing, quote-unquote, domestic terrorism. Tell us more about this. And I don't think it's the so first time. We don't have, I don't really think we have many proposals on, like, specifics on the table at the moment, but a number of people are talking about how we need a new domestic terrorism law in response to this incident. Uh, throughout the Trump years, we've seen white supremacist and far-right violence, including a really horrible uh, shooting at, at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, deliberately targeting people of Latino origin. Um, and, and some of the responses to that has always been, we need a new domestic terrorism law, and some of those responses are coming from people who are well-meaning and are thinking, you know, oh, why can't we stop this? We maybe need a new law. 
and others of it are, of course, coming from people who are power-hungry and never let a good uh, crisis go to waste. And I think we have to be clear, we don't need a new domestic terrorism law. The Brennan Center did a study of the so-called 57 uh, federal crimes of terrorism. These are crimes, of, these are crimes that are uh, demarcated crimes of terrorism by the federal code. Uh, 51 of those 57 crimes, 89%, applies to domestic activity. Of course, there are no shortage of laws against violence, against storming the Capitol, against trying to kidnap people. I mean, all of this conduct is already illegal, and the FBI already has broad surveillance powers to surveil domestic terrorism. And we've seen them in the name of fighting domestic terrorism go out for these really sort of ridiculous investigations. I mean, something I worked on was I spent five years trying to get the FBI to release uh, documents about their investigations into pro-Palestinian groups. And, you know, as a result of the release of these documents, it showed they conducted a number of investigations into these groups, including a domestic terrorism investigation. And when you go and you look at the documents and read, you know, what's the justification for thinking these people are domestic terrorists? Well, it says, well, they have anti-capitalist beliefs, they don't like globalization, they're sympathetic to Palestine, so they might become become terrorists. And we see with Occupy Wall Street, we see with all these groups like that, you know, the FBI admitting these groups are nonviolent, but concocting through convoluted reasoning why they can go out and, and spy on them. So when the FBI wants to spy on you, you know, they can come up with no shortage of reasons to sort of manipulate what you're doing into falling under their charter to investigate domestic terrorism. And I would also say the current FBI guidelines are the loosest they've been since the post-Church Committee era and that the FBI, as of 2008, is allowed to investigate people absent a factual predicate of criminal wrongdoing or threat to national security. So the FBI not only is able to manipulate the definition of domestic terrorism to spy on speech, they also no longer need a factual predicate to believe that you are engaged in any wrongdoing to open this type of investigation called an assessment. So there's no shortage of laws to try and convict people under, and there's no shortage of surveillance powers. In fact, there are far too many surveillance powers as evidenced by the amount of time the FBI spends on first protected speech while they keep dropping the ball on actual violence. So then what's the purpose of this? So what more power do they need if they pass uh, such uh, legislation, uh, domestic terrorism bill? What, what extra stuff would they get than all the powers that they already have? I mean, I think that one of the biggest ideas is to try to create a uh, federal crime that is called, quote-unquote, domestic terrorism. Uh, people sometimes will reference the fact that um, under the... 1996 Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which was pushed through after the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, the State Department can create a list of foreign terrorist organizations, and you can be convicted uh, for providing material support, in some cases in the form of speech to those organizations. I, I've sometimes heard people float the idea of um, a similar idea for domestic groups, although that's largely considered a non-starter because it's so uh, blatantly unconstitutional. I mean, these are the types of proposals that are being uh, floated. When we see actual legislation, we'll, we'll know what they're up to. But, I mean, both those ideas are just terrible ideas. Uh, prescribing political organizations is, you know, absolutely against the First Amendment, creating yet another criminal charge when you have all these other criminal charges, is not terribly useful. And it's also, um, you know, who will be charged under that, and will it just be more heightened penalties for protesters and, and things like that? Yeah, and, and you know, since 9-11, uh, the horrific attacks uh, on September 11th, you know, things have changed big time in the United States, especially by law enforcement agencies, with the surveillance, investigations, all kinds of things and power and money and so on. 
that have poured into their surveillance and those uh, undercover investigations and so on, and mainly against Muslims and Arabs living in the United States. You've talked about it uh, briefly, and for years, other groups and individuals, non-Muslims and non-Arabs, have been operating freely within the U.S., and we've seen attacks and increased hatred towards others from them, but we don't hear much of investigations or surveillance of those groups. It's only surveilling and investigating Muslims and Arabs. And they report, I think you just mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, the FBI investigation of a non-violent group in the U.S. Was that, that the International Solidarity Movement, the ISM? Yeah, that's the ISM, yeah. Tell us that's more then about to. that and this non-violent, worldwide, known, well-respected, actually, organization. And the FBI put all its efforts to investigate this organization? Multiple times over. I mean, it wasn't just one investigation. The documents I got back were heavily redacted, so... It's impossible to piece together everything, but I was able to put together a coherent timeline of at least two investigations into the ISM, and some of the other documents would indicate there were others. Uh, one was a domestic terrorism enterprise investigation against the ISM broadly based out of California. That's the one where they... Um, you know, reference they had anti-capitalist views, so they must be terrorists. The other was an international terrorism investigation against two activists in St. Louis, and the conclusion of the investigation was that neither person had ever done anything other than engage in First Amendment protected speech. And while you know, I'm 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 glad that was their conclusion. The types of things they did as part of this investigation included uh, pulling their phone. Uh, call records, either via a grand jury subpoena or a national security letter, which is a very intrusive form of surveillance that these people were subjected to based on the complaints of someone of quote-unquote unreliable sources. And, you know, all they were doing was exercising their First Amendment rights. And, you know, in the other ISM investigation, they kept uh, citing information from far-right webpages like the uh, front page from David Horowitz. So they were looking at really politically biased information about these people and using it to justify intrusive investigations. And at the end of the day, they couldn't find anything besides speech, which, of course, that's what the ISM does. But, you know, it was really troubling. You know, that is uh, very interesting. So many also say that with this, uh, if they pass this so-called uh, domestic terrorism uh, bill, if it goes through, they will have a whole lot more, and they can do a whole lot more. Obviously, it won't be only towards uh, white supremacists or those right-wing mobs that, as what we have witnessed in Washington, D.C., but it will be kind of more of a free blanket for them to do whatever they want to do against anybody in the United States, no matter what, period. And they may even yeah, no. have secret uh, courts, or uh, didn't they invoke that after 9-11? I forgot what it's called offhand. You don't even have to have witnesses and stuff like that, and they can charge somebody with anything and go away with it. Yeah, I mean, so when it comes to going after, quote-unquote, international terrorism, they have um, far more leeway because the Supreme Court and other courts have sort of interpreted a sort of a, a lesser standard for surveillance and trials when it involves either foreign counterintelligence or international terrorism. Uh, with domestic crimes like domestic terrorism, they're a little bit more constrained, so it doesn't seem they would be likely, as likely able to go as far as they went with the Patriot Act for domestic actions, but it's still very troubling and, and very concerning. So what do you think people can do to prevent such things from moving forward? Because you have labeled it... Uh, it's just not right, and it's a bad idea to pass a law that uh, to talk about you know domestic terrorism and so on. What can people, ordinary people or organizations, do to counter that so it doesn't move forward? Well, I think people should be speaking out and raising their voices and making it clear to their elected officials that while they understand the threat of far-right violence, they do not want a new domestic terrorism law and make it clear that their constituents oppose this type of attack on our civil liberties. You mentioned earlier when you talked about your organization that you also all collaborate with other organizations and so on, and I have heard 
different voices uh, from different organization voices also that are raising concerns about this domestic terrorism uh, bill yeah there's there's a, a lot of opposition to it um you know we work very closely with the justice for muslims collective which is a fiscally sponsored project of ours uh aclu and brennan center have also been very much at the out front saying we don't want a new domestic terrorism bill. The leadership conference for civil rights, the largest grouping of civil rights groups, is going to come out in opposition to a domestic terrorism bill. So in the civil rights, civil liberties, and human rights communities, there's broad consensus that we do not want this bill, including from groups that represent the types of communities that are targeted by the types of violence we saw on January the 6th. Absolutely. And I uh, want you to give the website for your organization to our listeners, for those who are interested in more information uh, and to follow up on those uh, topics. Sure. So the organization is Rights and Dissent. That's D-I-S-S-E-N-T dot org. You can learn all about the broad range of our work. We also have the Spine podcast, which uh, goes to the history of FBI surveillance, our most recent episode was specifically on FBI surveillance of Arab American and Muslim American communities, you can find the podcast at stillspine.org. And I will have links to those on our website, arabvoices.net. And uh, thanks for giving me permission. I plan on airing that podcast on the FBI's surveillance of Arabs and Muslims in the U.S. uh, soon on uh, Arab Voices on this program. Any last word you'd like to share with our uh, listeners, Chip? I just, as I said before, I take very seriously the threat that we saw on January the 6th, but I also recognize how the surveillance state, how the national security state functions, and they absolutely cannot be trusted with any new surveillance powers. Very well. Chip Gibbons, the policy director for Defending Rights and Dissent, and the host of the Still Spying podcast, has been our guest from Washington, D.C. We greatly appreciate your time, Chip. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to Arab Voices on KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Joining us via phone from California is Jihan Hakim. She is chair of the Yemeni Alliance Committee, which focus has been to advocate for ending the U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen by raising awareness and pushing legislation. Jihan is a Yemeni-American based in California. Jihan, welcome to Arab Voices. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. It's good to have you again on the show. You know, we're getting close to almost six years now since that Saudi-led, United Arab Emirates-led, U.S.-supported and funded war on Yemen. It's more accurate description as a genocide has started major devastation in Yemen. Tell us about the situation now. What is it like in Yemen? Yes, that's right. I think um, a recap would be good for listeners to just remember when you say six years, um, actually on the eve of March 26, 2015, almost six years ago, Saudi Arabia, under the leadership of Malik bin Salman, who was the is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who had only been in power for just a few months, uh, they launched airstrikes on Yemen. Um, really escalating the civil war um, into a regional inferno. And uh, since then, since 2015, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and its coalition, which includes the Arab countries of Kuwait, Bahrain, Sudan, Egypt, Morocco, uh, and others, they kind of come in and out, um, have been bombing Yemen. And the coalition, like you said, is backed and supported by the U.S., the U.K., and other Western partners who've been providing the coalition with um, training Saudi forces. The U.S. specifically, we maintain, repair, and upgrade the coalition's vehicles and aircraft. Um, we provide intelligence support and targeting assistance. If we remember back in August of 2018 when a school bus was bombed by uh, Lockheed Martin bombs, that was due to U.S. targeting assistance. Um, So we are very, um, not just complicit, but we are very active uh, when it comes to the war in Yemen. You know, the intervention began as just a short-term mission, but here we are um, almost six years in, and um, there's no end in sight. 
and uh, many analysts say and I'm sure you probably do the same you say the same if the United States it stops its support militarily to this war there is no doubt that it will stop and it will end you know it is without a doubt that the Saudi-led coalition cannot continue to wage its aggression without the support of the U.S. Uh, which outside of the military assistance and targeting support also includes arms sales, like I said. Um, Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates do not uh, build and manufacture bombs. They rely heavily on the West um, for that uh, equipment. Uh, So, of course, uh, without the support of the West, then Saudi Arabia will no longer continue to bombard Yemen. While the civil unrest within Yemen and a lot of the Arab world uh, might continue very well, but um, as it began in 2014, uh, it may continue as a civil matter um, without the foreign regional powers. And we do know that the U.S. is profiting uh, from this war. I mean, the U.S. has a legacy of endless wars, not just in Yemen, but um Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, if we look across the Middle East and North Africa, um, war profiteering has generated a lot of revenue uh, to the U.S. I mean, military spending is the the most um, out of our uh, federal budget. So um, definitely uh, we provide all the equipment in order, um, you know, we hear about the Yemen being the world's worst humanitarian crisis. I mean, outside of the war, um, there are other things that the U.S. does. Um, The U.S. supports the Uh, naval land and air blockade on Yemen since the conflict began, and that has severely restricted the flow of food, fuel, and medicine to everyday civilians. Um, Recently, we heard Pompeo announce that they are planning to designate the Houthis as FTOs, or foreign terrorist organizations. Um, And why this is a problem? I mean, it's not a game of semantics. It's not as if declaring the Houthis is going to, you know, make them any more uh, of a problem. They are a problem to the to the civil society in Yemen. But what is th- what this is going to do is going to further push the Yemeni civilians into a full-fledged famine. Uh, many aid groups and lawmakers from around the globe have, have spoken out uh, condemning this move because millions of Yemenis would be at risk to starvation. Tell us more about the Houthis too, so listeners can understand that, put it in perspective. So here the United States just announced that they are going to consider them a terrorist organization. You said organizations are opposing to that because it will cause famine and major problems within Yemen including the United Nations. As a matter of fact, they spoke against that. The Red Cross, I believe, also spoke against that. Tell us, who are the Houthis, and why would that cause famine if they consider Houthis as a terrorist organization? Sure. The Houthis is a political movement. It's not actually called the Houthis. The Houthi is a family. <laughs> uh, the, the commander is named uh, Bidr al-Din al-Houthi. Um, but the uh, armed group, which is among the uh, warring parties, uh, is called Ansar Allah, uh, also known as the Helpers of Allah, um, and they uh, staged a coup in in um, a few years ago when Hadi, the um, the runaway president, was uh, in the palace in Sana'a. So they marched down from Sa'da to Sana'a and took over the presidential palace. Um, and since then, um, they have uh, been they're controlling over 80% of Yemen. Um, so the reason why uh, this FTO will impact civilians because uh, Houthis are, are holding all of these places where everyday Yemeni civilians who are apolitical will be impacted by these further aid cuts. So it's really just a move that the State Department, in addition to the Trump administration, is trying to do to appease the Saudis um, before he leaves office. Interesting. And uh, you you just mentioned it a few minutes ago that uh, Yemen is the worst and largest, actually, the United Nations classified it as such, the worst and largest humanitarian crisis in the world, with more than 24 million people. That's about 80% of the population. Imagine that, 80% of the population of a country are in need of humanitarian assistance, including more than 12 million children. Tell us more about exactly the situation and and how is this war affecting the people of Yemen? 
Yeah, you know, Yemen depends heavily on imported food and medicine and fuel for up to 80 to 90 percent of the population's needs. So the population is a total of approximately 30 million. And like you said, uh, over 20 million rely on imported aid. Um, and um, since 2015, there have been over 100,000 deaths that have been due to the violence and over 85,000 children have starved to death. In this day and age, children should not be starving to death. And this is not due to a drought. It's not due to a natural catastrophe. The blockade has been um, the most impactful and, and the thing that we don't hear about the most because it's, it's the silent killer. It's food is being politicized. And it's being used as a weapon of war against the, the most vulnerable. Yeah, and of course there are so many other things that for with the constant bombings, the infrastructure of the country are destroyed. Uh, freeways, roads, the water uh, sources have been hit. Uh, I've read a lot about no clean water there, sanitation problems, lack of electricity illnesses, epidemics, and of course we now have COVID-19. I know, and I know there was an outbreak of the cholera not too long ago in Yemen, and not to forget the education system and the economy and unemployment, all of that is getting worse and worse as a direct result of the blockade and the constant bombardment of Yemen. So right now, we have a new administration. We are recording this interview on Tuesday evening. Comes Wednesday, January 20th, when by the time we air this interview on the show, there will be a new president in the United States, President Biden. What do we know so far about his stance towards the U.S.-supported war on Yemen? And what have we learned about his views, or what would he do, if any, or what would he change once he becomes president regarding the war on Yemen? Yeah, what you mentioned before is, is all correct and accurate. Unfortunately, Yemen has been really destabilized and the infrastructure has been completely toppled. Um, there is no governing party at the time, to be quite honest with you, other than the de facto Houthis, which are not at the table and... Um, you know, the, the repercussions are going to be felt by everyday Yemeni civilians. With respect to Biden and uh, his stance towards the war on Yemen, we know that the Saudi-led war on Yemen began during the Obama-Biden administration in 2015. You know, uh, since then, more than a dozen senior Obama administration officials, including Susan Rice, Samantha Power, Ben Rhodes, have called for an end to U.S. participation in the war. And um, what we do know from uh, Biden's campaign and um, different uh, briefs where he's been quoted is that Biden has promised Yemeni American two things, to rescind the unconstitutional Muslim ban, which is still in place, and to end U.S. support for the war on Yemen. Biden has been quoted several times uh, saying that he is vowing to end uh, endless wars in Afghanistan and the Middle East while also specifically referring to ending support to the silent war in Yemen. Recently in November, um, Biden said that his administration would reassess the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. So these are uh, a lot of promises. Um, so I, I think that, you know, we are uh, counting on uh, the, the new administration to really follow through with all of these promises and also... Um, with respect to support, um, you know, while the new administration is referring to ending support for the war in Yemen, I think it must be clear that we acknowledge what U.S. support for the coalition has looked like since 2015. Like I said, we sell arms to KS, to United uh, Arab Emirates and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We support the blockade. We provide military support and targeting assistance and logistical support. Support. We also have cut aid. Um, so the language of redress must be specific and clear, and a timeline of when this will happen is important. You know, this march, like I said, will be six years of war. So we have a lot of asks and a lot of expectations, and we plan to, um, you know, hold his feet to the fire and really um, scale back the role of the U.S. Um, in the war in, on Yemen. And uh, quite frankly, we 
we would want it to end completely. The U.S., uh, the Yemen is a sovereign nation, and we should have the autonomy to solve our internal matters uh, internally. And I think it wasn't too long ago when the United States also approved even additional money to United Arab Emirates, some $23 billion in arms sale. And we know what the United Arab Emirates is going to use that for. They have been bombing, just like Saudi Arabia, Yemen. Of course, they say we want to protect ourselves. It's from Iran. But uh, they will be using that. And the United States and the arms and the sales all over the world, thanks to the military-industrial complex, they, I feel sometimes that they create wars just so they can uh, sell arms and they, to all parties, to all sides, and take billions of dollars from everybody uh, out there. Right, right. Yeah, the recent arm contract of F-35 to the United Arab Emirates, we all know that um, their plans, uh, we, we, we don't see any, um, any proof that the UAE is planning to leave Yemen. It's actually the opposite. Uh, the United Arab Emirates is really um, taking hold of the south in addition to the island of Suqatra. Um, which um, they have taken resources and part of the land and um, have really even expanded tourist visits to United Arab Emirates, while Yemen itself, both the north and the south, does not have a functioning airport for actual civilians who need medical assistance, life-saving support, cannot leave or even enter Yemen. So, um, I mean, I think the upside with this new administration um, is that uh, Blinken, the Department of State, uh, pledges that he will immediately review a U.S. terror de designation of the Houthis. And um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, ending this support, and there's been a lot of talk around um, canceling arms contracts. So um, I think it's going to definitely be an uphill fight, and uh, the military-industrial complex, in addition to how it plays out with foreign policy, is um, is not a fun fight, and there's not a lot of people doing this work, quite frankly. So, um, you know, we, we have a, a long uphill fight with this. Absolutely, and, and we all know politicians, regardless of where they come from, uh, Republicans, Democrats, or whatever, they say one thing and they do another, especially during a campaign season. They promise all kinds of things to all kinds of uh, people on all kinds of issues. But once they are in office, could be a whole different uh, ball game uh, of what they actually do and whether they will fulfill their promises and what they said they will do or not. We are uh, to see that. So has there been 100%. any... Absolutely, yeah. Has there been any support from politicians within the United States, regardless, Democrats, Republicans, or anything? Are there more calls to end this war? You think there will be more support in the Senate? Any Congress people are voicing their concern about this war on Yemen? Yeah, you know, I just wanted to add that you're 100% right that war is a bipartisan issue. So both sides of the, of the team, you know, either side of the team, um, have really pushed wars uh, historically. Um, you know, there have been quite a few progressive lawmakers that have been uh, have voted on the right side when it comes to Yemen. Uh, Ro Khanna, Bernie Sanders, um, Chris Murphy. You know, we have quite a few allies in the House, um, and now we know that the House is more blue. Um, you know, who knows if that will make a difference? But we do know that that. Um, there is hopefully a new war powers resolution that is being introduced. Um, you know, in 2019, there was a war powers resolution that passed through both chambers. It was bipartisan, um, but Trump vetoed it as promised. So we're hopefully, uh, we're hoping that, um, again, that a new war powers resolution is going to be invoked and um, hoping to get bipartisan votes. Um, and this will uh, once and for all cut off um, armed support, military support, logistical support. Um, and if Biden is uh, as serious about ending the role of the U.S. in war crimes in Yemen and elsewhere, uh, and he's been quoted saying wanting to end endless wars, then he will have no problem signing off on the war powers resolution and finally getting the U.S. out of this entangled relationship and remove this ugly stain from our history and, and prospective future. And Biden directly helped 
start this war because as you mentioned earlier this war started under the Obama administration and he was vice president at that time so he needs to correct that disastrous catastrophic decision to support this war and fund and uh, militarize Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates assault on uh, Yemen so he can take action now as uh, president of the United States so Jihan January 25th just um, a few days from now 2021 there is a worldwide a global day of protest calling for mm-hmm. no to war on Yemen tell us more about this important global event yes of course um, but like you said Biden has a moral obligation to end U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen so we're expecting him in his first 100 days to make ending U.S. support to the Saudi-led war on Yemen a foreign policy priority. Um, and, and what we're doing on the 25th is we're organizing an International Day of Action for Yemen, just days after the U.S. presidential inauguration, and it's also a day before Saudi Arabia's Davos in the Desert Future um, Investment Initiative, where Saudi Arabia is planning to garner more funding um, because after Khashoggi was brutally murdered by the Saudi regime, uh, Saudi Arabia lost a lot of support. Um, so th- that's that's the reason behind January 25th. Um, the Yemeni Alliance Committee and a lot of core organizers um, from around the world really drafted a joint statement titled World Says No to War on Yemen. And we have it in five languages, condemning the role of Western pi- powers in the war on Yemen. Um, so far, we have over 200 organizations from over 20 countries who signed on to the joint statement. And our asks are for the day of action is to end U.S. support for the Saudi-led war on Yemen, for Biden to vote for a war powers resolution with peace that will cut off military support and end arms sales to the coalition once and for all, to restore and expand aid into all of Yemen. This also includes reversing the Houthi uh, FTO designation if it's confirmed, and to also lift the blockade and open all land and seaports. On the 25th, there will be protests in New York, California, Chicago, London, Ireland, Spain, all across the world, in other states and different countries. We're encouraging folks to hold protests or um, organize digital webinars or different actions in the U.S. and across the globe in solidarity with us. So folks can join us on the streets if it's safe to do so or online. Uh, It's an anti-war movement and it's growing into a global one. So wherever folks are, they can join us on January 25th. And we'll also need folks after the 25th because we know that, you know, even with all this pressure that uh, it is not going to be easy to you know, cut off the military-industrial complex. It will be uh, an uphill battle, and we'll need all hands on deck. So we encourage folks to follow us on our social media platforms. You can just search up the Yemeni Alliance Committee, and you can find us there, and you can plug in. Absolutely, and we'll have links uh, to those and to the event on our website, arabvoices.net. So it's a global event, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, several uh, cities and different states here in the U.S., as well as so many other countries, Uh, people will be participating, people will be gathering safely, hopefully, with the social distancing to protest the war. But there is also going to be an online event at the same time, correct, with speakers? Yes, uh, the 25th, we're going to have an online uh, rally. And um, this is going to be a global one, too. We're going to have speakers from London, like Jeremy Corbyn, who's a part of the parliament. We're going to have actor Danny Glover, uh, we're going to have uh, some activists. Uh, we're going to have some entertainment. Uh, we're going to have Dr. Shirin Al-Ademi, Yemeni-American scholar, who's been really vocal on the role of the West in the war on Yemen. And we're going to have a really good lineup and a, a few politicians. So um, you can find us on the site. So I'll send you all the links and people can register. Registration is still open. Yeah, and we've had uh, Dr. Shirin Al-Ademi on this show a few times uh, in the past, and uh, I saw also Dr. Cornell West is going to be participating as one of the speakers uh, at this mm-hmm. online global uh, rally, and that is something uh, really big. Uh, what time is that going to take place on the 25th of January? So that's going to take place 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and then if you're in the U.K., uh, 7 p.m. in the evening over there. 
Excellent, and we'll link to that on our website. You know, you mentioned the war. Uh, I was reviewing more information about the Biden administration and his team, and uh, there are many of the people that he chose to fill his cabinet. They are really coming. They are war hawks. Uh, his nominee for the Secretary of the Department of Defense, General Lloyd Austin, he has been on the board of directors of the Raytheon Corporation, top profiteer from the war for many years. And uh, many, many others, they have been just involved with wars left and right, big time over the years. So that's going to be, like you mentioned earlier, and, and it's going to be a battle really to counter the Biden administration and to pressure it and hold him accountable for what's happening really in Yemen and call for a stop to this catastrophe, this genocide that is happening in front of our eyes in Yemen so they can stop it and they can, they can stop it and instantly uh, if Biden chooses right. to. You're absolutely right, yeah, the the all of the folks that the, the the Biden administration has added on are Obama administration veterans. So uh, we know that in 2015, the intervention, uh, Obama um, allowed the U.S. intervention without uh, congressional support. So, yeah, that is very concerning that the same folks who approved of this back in 2015 are back, uh, you know, uh, on the same team now. Um, but we have heard Blinken um, who was also part of that administration, um, you know, kind of switch uh, from being pro-war uh, to being um, a little bit more um, uh, being open to reassessing the relationship with Saudi Arabia. So we have really no no uh, other uh, chance except for to be hopeful and continuing to fight, to be honest with you, because uh, it's not going to be easy. I mean, there's a lot of money, like you said, uh, billions of dollars are going into these contracts. So, you know, the U.S. is on the one hand banning, helping starve and bombing the people of Yemen and at the same time uh, profiting. So it's, it's, it's a really uh, disgusting uh, entanglement. Jehan, what can people do to help? What would you want them to do? Obviously, they can participate in this upcoming January 25th global online rally to say no to the war on Yemen. But what can they also do to assist or pressure or speed up stopping this war on Yemen? That's a really great, great question. And I think a lot of uh, U.S. citizens, constituents, do not know how much power we all have. You know, a lot these lawmakers, we put them into office, we put them into power, and they represent us. That's why they're called the House of Representatives. And uh, they have an obligation to constituents. So folks can easily call their lawmakers. They can call the switchboard 202-224-3124. You put in your zip code, and then you'll be automatically transferred to your representatives. And leave them a message, leave them an email, you can leave them a tweet. And basically just tell them that I am your constituent. Uh, I don't approve of my tax dollars going to fund endless wars and to support war crimes. Um, and uh, and that's pretty much where the conversation can start because I think the on the one hand, Yemen is the forgotten war because the media doesn't talk too much about it. And then therefore people don't know enough about it. So if, if more folks understood what was happening and understood how we were directly supporting uh, these war crimes, no one with uh, a conscience would uh, be okay with that. So I encourage folks to call their lawmakers, email them or tweet at them, and just really hold them accountable. Why are you supporting the Saudi-led war on Yemen? And I urge you to pass legislation that would end U.S. support and end arms sales to the coalition. Um, and then, of course, follow us on social media because maybe some of these uh, actions can be a little complicated. We have a toolkit that can make advocacy a little bit easier. People can retweet, repost, and I think that's um, a good start. Excellent. Uh, that's to be very crucial, really, in supporting these efforts to end the war on Yemen, and the sooner the better, obviously, as the catastrophe there and the suffering is unimaginable on a daily basis. Jihan Hakim, chair of the Yemeni Alliance Committee, 
was joining us from California. I really and greatly appreciate your uh, time and all the efforts that you're doing, Jihan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Absolutely. You too. Bye-bye. Masalama. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth. to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM on your radio. Your spot for Cajun and Zydeco music. Bon ton roulette. Oh, yeah, that's-